this kid. His name was Ryan and got an A line in him and checked a base deficit. It was minus 32. And so about 45 to 50 units later, we, we were done. It took most of the night. We had corrected his base deficit to zero. He was not anemic. He was normal thermic and he wasn't bleeding. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Lieutenant Colonel retired James Reed has held various assignments in the Army Medical Department, including intensive care nurse and flight nurse in the Army Burn Unit. He was a distinguished graduate of the prestigious U.S. Army Graduate Program in Anesthesia Nursing. He has participated in hundreds of combat missions and administered care to a countless number of casualties. In this episode, Colonel Reed describes his unique experience becoming one of the most deployed certified registered nurse anesthetists in Army medicine. He discusses his experience with remarkable saves and the life lessons he learned while treating those who could not be saved. Jim discusses not only what CRNAs do for the military, but also his subsequent work on helping veterans to hopefully reduce the suicide rate. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army CRNA, Lieutenant Colonel James Reed to War Docs. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate this opportunity. So can you tell us a little bit about the pathway to joining the Army and your pre-medical military service? I was kind of a wayward kid and bounced around from home to home, honestly, when I was in high school. And I ended up in Arizona going to a small little rural high school, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me. I didn't have a lot of resources. And so I joined the Army. I saw a movie called First Blood, and like many of us back in the, the early 80s. And I wanted to do something like that. And so ultimately, I joined the Army and became a medic, a 91 Bravo, wanted to become a Special Forces medic. But that was a little bit longer commitment. And so I really only wanted to do a three-year commitment at that time. But I ended up in the 10th Special Forces Group at uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts, and served in the medical platoon there. And really enjoyed my time working with those folks. There was a lot of Green Berets that were Vietnam veterans that were my mentors while I was in that group. I was actually able to deploy with the operational battalions to winter warfare exercises in Utah and Vermont and then Dumas, Norway, and then did a flintlock exercise to Spain right about the time that we were bombing Tripoli and Libya. And so with that experience, I realized that this was my niche. I really enjoyed the company that I was able to keep. And so when it came time to get out, I was deciding whether or not I should re-enlist to go to the Q course or just get out and go to college. And so I did talk to an in-service recruiter who was uh, servicing the 19th Special Forces Group. And so I went ahead and got out and joined a team here in Tucson, which was my hometown, and ended up with a great team leader and a great team sergeant that allowed me to flourish. And I, I wasn't quite sure. I was at this point in my life back then, back in the late 80s, want to go to medical school, learn how to do that. There were folks that I knew from 10th group that were heading that way. You went to college on an ROTC scholarship, didn't you? I actually ultimately ended up applying to the Green to Gold program. But I served for 
the first couple of years I was in college, I was a reservist or a, a guardsman and footing my way using the old Veep. I think it was chapter 32. But then ultimately, I, I ended up taking an ROTC scholarship to finish out my last two years of school. But that was a few years away at that point. And yeah, I came in the Army as an E1. Always proud to say that to people, as, as low as you can be. And, and so, but the Army offered, for somebody like me, limitless opportunity. They, they'd put it in front of you. And really, the only thing I had to do was take it and, and do the best I could and then move forward. So the team that I was on, my team leader, who I'm still friends with, he probably lives three or four miles from where we just moved here back home to Tucson. He introduced me to somebody at the hospital. He did financial and, and investment work. And so he introduced me to somebody at the hospital who also mentored me, started out as a 91 Bravo 4 Sierra in Vietnam, and then worked his way through medical school, becoming a nurse, and then worked his way through medical school, and then ultimately becoming a trauma surgeon. And that guy was Rich Carmona. And so Dr. Carmona, I've, I've tried to remind him a couple of times at SOMA conferences how much of an impact he made on me, but he never remembers. He didn't remember, but he really made an impact on me. And it was it's unforgettable because I was in nursing school. I was basically following his path. And I was thinking, okay, the nursing school is a great way to take care of myself as I head to medical school. And he said, before I write you a letter of recommendation to go to medical school here at the U of A, I want you to go over to the VA hospital. I want you to go and align yourself with some CRNAs over there for a bit and see what they do. And I, I loved it. I felt like I had connected very well with the CRNAs at the VA hospital here in Tucson. And so ultimately that became my goal in finishing up nursing school here at the University of Arizona, taking a commission. And my first assignment was Brook Army Medical Center right out of nursing school. Let's talk a little bit about that. You went to Fort Sam and did the intensive care nurse and flight nurse programs at the Army Burn Unit. Tell us about that assignment and your memorable experiences. Well, the first assignment I did right out of nursing school, so I, I left an SF team, which I, I loved, and then they put me on female medicine over at Beach Pavilion. I hated it, and most everybody would, but I had to pay my dues, and so ultimately, I was able to, to work there for a bit, and somebody somewhere saw some aptitude and allowed me to go to the ICU course, but they they pushed me to the left a little bit and let me go a little earlier. So I ended up on working on a place uh, called 13A, which those who've worked at Bamsey before the new hospital, this was at the old Bamsey, 13A was the surgical trauma ICU. And I had an amazing experience learning there. I worked with some great surgeons at night, mostly because I tend to tra traverse to the, uh, the night shift where most of the quote unquote action was. I was one of those kind of people that would go into work. And before going to work, I would drink some coffee and watch the news and see who I was taking care of that night. Or I would watch the news and see who I took care of the night before. And so it being the surgical trauma ICU, we were a catchment for most of the things that were going on. A, a lot of penetrating trauma. I worked with some great people who ultimately became very successful in the AMED. John Jaffin was one of them. And I know Johnny Alvarez was there. And when that guy talked, everybody listened. And he ultimately became a, a Red Cross volunteer at Fort Hood after I uh, became a CRNA. So that's another story. But the mentorship 
nothing short of incredible. I was on my way to apply to anesthesia school and we had a premature son and that set me back a, a year there. And then he was starting to have some other issues and it looked like we had to rule him out for neuroblastoma. So I delayed going into anesthesia school. And as a way to do that, I took an assignment up in the burn unit where I never knew that people I could take care of and keep people alive who were that sick. It, the burn unit, while albeit was probably the hardest job I ever had in my life, it was one of the most rewarding professionally as far as how much I learned about human physiology, pharmacology, and all the things that keep people going. It was a great primer for anesthesia training. I ended up being accepted to the flight team there and earned my flight wings through through service there in the burn unit. One of the standout things that, that we had during my time there was a plane crash that happened in Guam. A 747 went down there and we flew all those casualties back back to Bamsey. And that was that was a heck of a trip on a C-141. But this was back when CCATs were just becoming somewhat known back in the, the mid-90s. I know the Wil Wilford Hall had an effort to field CCATs. I remember General Carlton was over there as the commander. They had that moving forward. And I worked with getting those, those first CCATs stood up. It was initially going to be a joint Army Air Force effort, and then ultimately the Air Force, because they own aircraft and everything else, it became one of their one of their core capabilities. One of the interesting things that I found out about the, the Army burn team or the flight burn team is that that group would go to wherever the patient was burned. And unlike the CCAT, they would stay with them and then care for that patient throughout their entire treatment and recovery. Yes, sir. I had many examples of that during my time on the flight team. I, I can tell a story about the time I flew to Uvalde, Texas to pick up a very horribly burned person from an, an electrical burn. And not only did I transport them back to the hospital, but I cared for her many, 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 many times during the course of her stay. Flew all over the state of Texas, picking up burn patients to bring back. One of, one of the, the standout things that I can recall was I was in charge on a Sunday morning. I, I guess all captains are young, but I was a young captain then. And I had, I think it was eight patients come in and the helicopters kept and this was when we moved over to the new place. So it was, we were on four South. And so we could see the helipad out the windows of the, of the unit. And we had eight burn patients come in simultaneous, all from the same family. And seven out of the eight were less than 12 years old. And so it, it was an incredible experience. You learn how to prioritize, but you learn how to just be proactive. I've always subscribed to this better to be a verb than a noun. And so working in and burn trauma, and as well as just trauma in general, you just got to be a verb. Fix what is going on acutely, and then move on to the next thing. And it was one of those experiences that just, albeit it was hard, it was tough. I, I learned a lot from the fact, from basically the staff, the faculty of the burn unit, that about attention to detail, about dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and making sure the things that needed to get done got done in the interest of the patient. It was not without its challenges, though. There were many times that you question the ethics of keeping a 90 percenter alive or, or otherwise. And there was a very wise person there that 
I was lamenting to one day because it was such a hard place to work. And he was a civilian that had worked there for years. His name was Clarence Wooten. And I said, Clarence, I'm having really struggling with this, that we're keeping these people alive. And, and he said, when I first got here 17 years ago, they would only live a matter of minutes to hours. Now they're living weeks. And so it is called the Institute of Surgical Research. And we collected a lot of data. It was ethically collected and we advanced science in there. And was it perfect? It, for me, it was a perfect place to learn before I went into anesthesia training. And really, it was a great place for me to learn before what, was, what nobody knew was going to happen was a 20-year protracted war after 9-11. My experience at BAMC and the burn unit was very combat-centric. And I'm, while all of it was tragic because nobody plans to, for these things to happen, it's my hope that those military medical practitioners that are there right now are getting what they need for the next conflict. It sounds like you were keeping your eye on the prize, which was training in nurse anesthesia. And you were accepted and graduated from the Army Anesthesia Nursing Program as distinguished graduate. And then you went to Fort Hood, Texas as a staff CRNA. And at that point in your career, you got back with the special operations community and were part of a forward surgical team. Tell us a little bit about that experience. I will just say anesthesia training, probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but I learned from the best. I mean, I had great faculty. I had great program director who was a combat veteran of the Battle of Mogadishu, uh, Gothic Serpent, and he got it. And so I'm forever grateful for the training that all the folks there put into me. During that time, there were several of the CRNAs that, that worked at William Beaumont Army Medical Center that were a part of, of a special operations surgical based out of Fort Bragg that supported special mission units. So I graduated in 2000. I was initially assigned to as, a, as, a, as the assigned CRNA to the 126 board surgical team there at Fort Hood, which was a great time, but I didn't really stay there very long. The folks that were mentoring and training me at William Beaumont had other plans for me. And so they invited me to come interview at the unit at Bragg, for which I did, and I was accepted. I went ahead and took the job. And this is right after 9-11. And so everybody was leaning forward. I wasn't yet trained, but ultimately ended up getting trained and deploying with the unit multiple times. But that experience, especially, I had to do some time there in the FST, learn some leadership as basically the unit XO and work with the NCOs so that we could get the mission done. And I enjoyed that time, but I was really looking forward to that opportunity with that special operations unit there at Bragg. How would you say that the readiness training level capabilities of that FST compared to the unit that you were going to join with special operations? I really do feel that we were in 13th COSCOM Back then in the 126, we did several big field exercises. We trained. I, I felt like that team in particular was, was ready and was well-trained for its mission to support a large maneuver element on the battlefield. I think doctrinally, it, it was able to do its mission. And it, in short order, that unit had to prove that on the battlefields of Iraq when, when, when they invaded. And so what's interesting is when I was supporting the, the special operations unit, I ended up at Saddam International Airport and the 126 was right down 
the runway from us. And so I knew everybody there. They did a great job. They took care of a lot of casualties. So they were ready and they were well-trained. The provider staff were people that I worked with at the hospital at Fort Hood over and over. And so that was the great thing. Hood was busy enough. It was a level two trauma center right there off 190 in Colleen. I was getting plenty of practice there in order to bring to bear a solid practice to my combat experience, as was everybody on the 126. This was before a lot of the things started happening where a lot of the retirees were moving out of, under, under the guise of the AMED and into the civilian sector. We were still taking care of a lot of pathology. And I, th- I felt like we, we had a great practice there at, at Fort Hood. Tell us a little bit about some of the memorable stories you have from working with the special mission units and counterterrorism operations, especially initially when you, you know, had graduated from CRNA school 2000. You don't have a whole lot of experience on your belt. And now you have a lot of responsibility and you're seeing stuff that you've probably never seen before. My first deployment with, with the unit was in July of 2002. So the war had been going on a little bit. And at that time, we were able to field a senior CRNA and a junior. I, I was able to be mentored a little bit and brought on somewhat slowly. We used to de- deploy in a little bit bigger package than what they do now and what we have ultimately evolved to when when I was there. And a guy who, I, I'm just going to mention his name, who mentored me was a guy named Joel Ayler. Joel was in the 10th group when I was up there back in the mid-80s. And so ultimately, we both became CRNAs and he mentored me And so I, on my first deployment with the unit. And then the next deployment was Operation Iraqi Freedom. And what I did remember initially was we were pretty big we had talking around it a little bit. We had a legacy mission that supported the Rangers, basically. So we tended to go a little bit bigger. That ultimately evolved into something a little bit smaller, a little bit more nimble, a little bit more flexible, and it, it was more customer-focused. But the things that I recall from back in the early parts of the war were our emphasis on getting as still as close to the point of entry as we could. And so if that meant on whatever Kazovac platform setting up, bringing blood. And this is really before a, a lot of the procoagulants. We weren't even really using procoagulants at that time or even clot stabilizers. And it was still very much component therapy resuscitations. And so really at that point, it was packed red blood cells. But it wasn't long after that, that we really started to, to change our what we carried, how we carried. And I know there were, there was a lot of controversies and, and we felt like there were some morning, morning quarterbacks back here in the rear, some of the things that we were trying to do, but necessity is the mother of invention. And so with regards to procoagulants, whole blood, things like that, that evolved over time. And we realized that that was efficacious, not necessarily the procoagulant factor 7A, but certainly the clot stabilization of TXA has certainly borne itself out to be something that's been value added to combat medicine. But a lot of that happened. I I was able to watch that happen from a young fledgling CRNA in this highly mobile, highly skilled with high expectation unit until becoming the senior guy in the organization in my specialty. Early on, what was your biggest challenge as a CRNA who involved in damage control resuscitation, damage control surgery, what were the challenges that you were finding that you said, we need to solve these problems or we're in trouble? 
there's still some problems out there that exist, but some of the biggest ones, how do we take care of the volumes with large volumes of patients and, and be effective in doing so? And one of the things that I think that was also at the same time really evolving was and professionalizing our first responders. And so we were working together, but we got a lot closer at it. And so we were able to leverage, or I guess I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but force multiply ourselves by training our first responders that much better. And that has to be an ongoing process because you get turnover and things like that. But we, we did a lot of, of training with our ranger medics and our other special operations medics to try to make them better and try to dovetail in with what we were trying to accomplish that I felt that ultimately ended up resulting in significant gains in morbidity and mortality on the battlefield. And then really looking at how many people did we lose because something preventable. So we really pushed a lot of expertise forward of ourselves in order to make them better. And for me personally, as a CRNA, I would talk very specific to the medics. Here's how I, you can set me up to be most effective so I can go right to work. And there was resistance at times. People didn't like to start IVs and things like that. But me as a CRNA, that's my primary mechanism for resuscitation. So I would talk to the medics. It's like, here, look. If you can get me at least one IV, I can get started. I don't care if it's a 20 gauge or not. I can convert it to a RIC. And that way, if I needed to do a higher volume resuscitation. When I first started there in the organization, we were moving away from crystalloid centric resuscitations. We were moving to more of a low pressure blood resuscitation. And then ultimately it became a whole blood model of resuscitation, which as you know, the, the data bears it out as the right thing to do until the next great thing happens. But I think those challenges for me as a young CRNA right out of school was managing all the equipment, keeping track of all the things that I had to keep track of. And ultimately I ended up having to pack for and prepare for every mission myself. And through muscle memory and everything else, you get quite good at these things and find what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And one of those things that I once I became more senior, I used that I used that experience of ultimately becoming very comfortable in uncomfortable locations to test the next guy who we were trying to interview, hire, assess, or select. And I go back to the, the harder you train, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed. Well, the less somebody else is going to bleed in combat. And, and that was applied to me. I was trained. It, it was intense. And it was relentlessly intent, unforgiving at times. I didn't like, I didn't like it, but it's what I signed up for. And then ultimately I, I grew to love it. I grew to love that high pressure environment. What did you think about the composition, the makeup of the teams that you were with? What specialties did you have available at that point of the spear care? We had general surgeons and we had orthopedic surgeons that didn't always accompany us, emergency medicine physicians, and then our, our physician's assistants. The PAs were typically out of the Ranger Regiment and or Special Forces, and they were our team leaders and they were exceptional, just absolutely exceptional. All the folks that hired and that made their way through the organization were, were great at what they did. And we all recognized we're a team. There's, there's always the rivalries that occur between, between specialties sometimes, 
I think the CRNAs and the ER guys tend to compete a little bit over airways and things like that. The surgeons and the CRNAs really, I would say we're a very close group of people. I still maintain friendships with some of my best friends are some of our surgeons from the organization, one of which spoke at my retirement ceremony because we operated a lot together. Ultimately, and he became our unit commander, Brian Burlingame. I, I deployed seven times with him and we became extremely close, but it was a collection of miscreants that were really very much mission focused. And we were relentless on one another and ourselves as far as pushing the limit. The one thing that I felt that was not only interesting, but from a professional standpoint, when we would deploy, everybody was reading about their specialty. And then we would talk to each other about, about different th- advances. People were really focused on keeping up with current literature and as well as working with, with folks who we supported. For example, Dr. Russ Cotwell, we would find ourselves in deep medical conversations in our hooches or, or otherwise when we weren't out on missions. And so we were really trying to peel away the layers of the onion and tease out what was working. There were many things that we tried over the years that, okay, that didn't work. So let's try something else. And one of, one of our, our core competencies or, or missions, mission statements was R and D. And so we, if, if there was a new piece of equipment out there, or there was an, a new technique of doing something, we tried it. We tried, we tried it in training. If it worked out in training, then we would try to field it on the battlefield. I remember the first time, the first sonocyte ultrasound we saw kind of this, it looks like a dinosaur now. You, you look at that and it has evolved now to really the standard of care when you're doing an initial fast exam on patients. Well, I, I remember early in the war, very early in the war, as early as 2002, we had an ultrasound in the back of a helicopter to be able to evaluate and assess patients and to determine whether or not we needed to, we needed to do, get, in, get inside to address any non-compressible hemorrhage. The, the quality of the image and everything else was wanting, but that idea of pushing it forward really kind of went and it, it pushed industry forward as well. And then I think that the rest of the army was coming along with us to try to do those kinds of things. Just a, a question about the composition of teams that are in the deployed environment. You know, one of the things that, that we have seen is that the anesthesiologists tend to be more located around the role three, the combat support hospitals, CRNAs more at the role two, even farther forward. What is the difference between the the roles of those two specialties, CRNAs and anesthesiologists? For me, I have so many great friends that are anesthesiologists. And I do think that from a professional standpoint at those role threes, I I do believe that they can offer their own unique experiences in their residencies and as, as physicians to work in that multidisciplinary team where fundamentally, when you look at, when you look at what we do, if you read credentials side by side, there, there's very little difference, right? But especially managing critical care patients and things like that, pre intra and post-operatively, I think that the anesthesiologists really do bring a lot to that. As far as what we did in the CRNAs at those forward locations and even forward of the FST where I was working, we are trained to be, especially those of us who who were army trained, and and I'm not going to say that there's a difference, but it is very rigorous. 
we were trained to be a blue collar resuscitator. Some of the, the folks that came before me are absolute legends in CRNA practice. And so I have managed very critically injured patients and resuscitated them in far forward locations. And I've done so on my own. That was the expectation. And that was how I was trained. One of the things that I tell my students that I teach is nobody rises to the occasion. They fall back on their training. And so I was very fortunate. People invested in me and made sure I was well-trained. Again, we had a high attrition rate for a reason because it wasn't for everybody. And so if I were to compare and contrast my experiences and and an anesthesiologist, it, it really is ultimately breaks down to apples and oranges in that I think they're very, very well suited to be at a role three because of the critical care aspects and things like that. And that overall managerial way, the way that they're trained, at least in the army, I don't know how necessarily the civilians are training them, but, but I know how we train CRNAs and we're, we're trained to be, because I did teach in the army program, but we're, we're trained to be very combat focused and get the job done as under the worst possible conditions in chaos. And for some of us, that became that became home, working under those chaotic conditions where you were work at austerity on steroids, where you were deprived of your senses, you were deprived of light. And I would never say that we flew by the seat of our pants, but we did what was necessary to make the air go in and out and the blood go round and round in the interest of the patient. There was nothing cavalier about what we were doing, how we were doing it, but you just had to get comfortable working in those kinds of conditions. I read in your bio that you were deployed nine times for over 1500 days. And so that's over a period of, of years. And you're going from a point where you're junior, just getting your skills under your belt and moving up in rank in experience. What were some of the significant lessons that you learned over time in those multiple deployments? I I look back at that time and it seemed like I was deployed more than I was home. And at one time I was the most deployed CRNA in the inventory. As far as lessons, I I was able to get small and function to do the most amount of good with, with the least amount of requirements. And I think our customers demand that we try to push as much medical capability out into the force as we possibly could knowing that if we did get a mass cal and we got many we could use that organic medical capability and so for me how i looked at the way i approached anesthesia surgical problems i was kind of a consultant if i i can tell a story about what happened at the end of august 2005 we got nine casualties from a huge ied explosion we just had dinner with a bunch of these guys four were kia and then the other five were horribly wounded and so for me, I was really focused on airway management, IV access, and went down the line, innovated more than one patient in a row that night. It was basically three. And, but I couldn't have done it without those around me. And the first responders who were the 18 Deltas and the Ranger medics, and then my ER doc. And so I think for me, the, the thing that I was able to do, I got very good at doing what needed to be done that was within my area of expertise and then allowing others to do their things. We worked beautifully together. And I think it was it was a function of the type of training that we were routinely being exposed to when we were home, which kept us away from the house and our wives and our kids even more. 
but it did benefit those who, who did get wounded in how well that we work together as a team, whether it be me and the surgeon, me and the ER doc, the PA, or the 18 series, or the SACA medics that, that we, we would routinely work with. And I think that that type of training, collective training in the dark, using all the equipment that you deploy with all the time. And um, not sure if this is permissible on this podcast or not, but we did a lot of live tissue training. It was all IACUC approved, but the live tissue training was hard and it was a high requirement. And what we did was it was a continuum of care from point of injury all the way up and through us to disposition. And so we trained it that way. And I think that that is the one thing that, that did help us to be effective, to be extremely effective. What was the most amazing save that you were personally involved in, in a deployed environment, treating a casualty? I'm really glad you asked me this, Doug. It was Veterans Day 2006. I'll never forget it. Had a young man. We were located in the city of Ramadi, my team, and we were actually out of the wire downtown in a convoy. There was a big explosion that was somewhat near us, but we, we heard about casualties. And so we disengaged from our target and we drove back to Camp Ramadi. There were nine of these kids that were wounded. I, I get in, at the lead trauma bed and the kid that I ended up taking care of had a traumatically disarticulated right lower extremity. Left lower extremity was barely hanging on. He was eviscerated, fingers gone. Heart rate was 190 and he was looking at me, asking me for morphine and he wasn't bleeding anymore. He had left most of his blood volume out there on the street. They were chasing an insurgent down an alleyway. We found this out later. His, his platoon leader came in the OR with us, cried with us, and he was in a command detonated IED went off right up underneath him. He was a tremendous athlete before he went in the army. And ultimately I got a central line in him, got him to sleep with polamine and vecuronium. That's it because he was too unstable otherwise. And we went to work and so got more IV access and where he would bleed. That's where the surgeons would work. And about the first eight to 10 units I gave him were pack cells until the whole blood started flowing. I was able to get an A-line. I had some help there. There's an anesthesiologist there, a Navy guy named Dave Junker, who was great. And we worked together on this kid. His name was Ryan and got an A-line in him and checked a base deficit. It was minus 32. And so about 45 to 50 units later, we, we were done. It took most of the night. We had corrected his base deficit to zero. He was not anemic. He was normal thermic and he wasn't bleeding anymore. And so we shipped him. And I, at that time, I didn't think he was going to survive. My, my, my friend, Mike Gooden and I, we lamented how hard we pushed on it. Ryan was the most significantly wounded one that night where, and the rest of his squad were not quite as bad. They've some washouts and things like that, but Ryan was horribly wounded and none of us expected him to survive. So fast forward, we kept hearing that he was doing okay. And a year after that, I was actually home on Veterans Day 2007 and I opened up the Army Times and I'm reading a story in the Army Times about a young man being an inspiration to everybody around him up at Walter Reed. And he is getting a medal or he's getting some sort of award from Senator Daniel Inouye, who was a Medal of Honor winner, and Senator Bob Dole. And it's that kid. And so I called my friend, 
Mike. And I'm like, Mike, you're not going to believe this. You got to get an army times to take a look at this. And so I realized at that point, it's not up to us. Sometimes it's up to God and it's just not up to us. So we do the best we can and we give everybody that fighting chance. And this kid not only fought, but he survived and he had his tribulations. He had his struggles. So fast forward, I retired and I, I reached out to him as I was getting ready to retire. I reached out, turned out, I'm not going to say his name on this podcast, but his name is easy to remember. And so I ultimately I made contact. His mother called me while I was on my way into my retirement ceremony, telling me, thank you. And, and I'm balling. I get into the retirement ceremony there at Womack and, and my wife's like, what are you crying for already? And I'm like, you're not going to believe this. So we ended up meeting over a Memorial Day weekend of 2012. It was the first time we had seen each other since the day he was wounded. It was emotional for me, for him. He was smiling. He was just happy. And I was like, Ryan, how could you be so happy all the time? I mean, you're so happy. You're so inspirational. He goes, I got to be like my blood type, be positive. And so my daughter ended up going to, to West Point. And so her plebe year, we're on our way up to a f- football game. He lives just outside of Baltimore. We're on our way up to the football game up there. And I called him. I'm like, hey, you want to go to the Army-Navy game with us? And he's like, sure. So right now, we're, we sit at seven games that we've gone together. We're great friends. And it's a wonderful story that I love to tell. Sometimes I get choked up talking about it. But that was a Herculean medical effort on behalf of the entire system from a point of injury where he didn't get a whole heck of a lot of care. There wasn't much to put a tourniquet on. And I don't even recall him having a tourniquet on. all the way up and through what we deal with today. That unit allowed me to do some great things, but I think that put my finger on the greatest save was definitely uh, that kid. And we're now friends. And so, and we've gone to seven Army Navy games together. He loves football. One of the things when we talk to, you know, folks who have deployed and taken care of some very severely injured service members and coalition partners. One of the things is the most memorable case often didn't have a great outcome, but that was the one that they relive and maybe learn a lot from. Do you have any cases like that where you said, I learned so much from this case, I'll never forget it? I did. Fast forward a couple of years in 08, my team and I were supporting our guys out of Nimroz province, Afghanistan, and I'll, I'll call him Dave. Dave was a Toon Sergeant in the Ranger Regiment, Second Rangers. And the night before we got weathered out, which was rare, we were all, we were based out of calf. And Toby Keith came to town with just a guitar and another guy. They were singing. And I'm standing next to Dave. He's a great guy. His troops love him. They love him. He's like the quarterback of the football team and the captain of the team. The next night we were out on a mission way out to Western Afghanistan. And part of the mission set was for us to get on the nozzle in the bird and do to refuel so that we could stay in close proximity to the assault force, our, our surgical team. We're in a 47 and they were coming off the target and we hear that there's somebody wounded on the target, but we couldn't get on the nozzle on the C-130. So we had to break and then fly to Camp Bastion to get gas. So we're at the FARP site and that's when the call came that there was a wounded, that we had a wounded soldier on the ground and they were coming off the target. This guy apparently jumped up out of a wadi and started shooting his AK. And this guy, Dave turned, faced the threat, but in the process of doing that, he caught two rounds, one up underneath the axilla and one in the pelvis 
And we were out of position from where our medical plan was, the surgical team. But the, the pilots, there was a little bit of confusion at the beginning. And then we lifted off and flew as fast as we could to get, get back to the assault force. We were set up, ready to go, ready to receive. Dave comes on the bird. It's clearly a very grave situation. Uh, I remember intubating him with no drugs as the aircraft was lifting off. And apparently, because I was so t- focused on him, his whole platoon, and as well as a strike force commander and some of his people had come onto the aircraft. So we've got like 35 or 40 of us on this bird, and we're flying as fast as we can back to Bastion. There was a British roll three there. And so we got lines in, I was given drugs, ultimately it ended up doing CPR. One of the innovations that we came up with in the organization were these little Vox boxes. They hooked into our Pelter headsets that we could plug into and I could talk to my surgeon, the ER guy, the PA, just like I'm talking to you right now. So this is a very loud, chaotic environment, but we're able to talk just like this. And we're flying 150 knots towards Bastion. There's 30 of his guy's troops watching us work. And we didn't give up, but the conversation between myself and a surgeon named Jason Hiles, who ultimately became the consultant for to the Surgeon General for General Surgery, was, do we open him up? Do we, do we crack his chest? And the decision was made in flight while we were doing a resuscitation and CPR was in progress, not to do that for fear of what we would find that then we would have to stop. And I felt like we felt he, he was gone at that point. And we were probably another 15 minutes from Bastion, but we weren't going to call it in the air, not in front of his troops. And so we made it in to Bastion. We got off the bird. We continued resuscitative efforts. And I took two of his guys, two of his Rangers came with us, infantrymen came with us into the hospital. And we had the Brits working for another 10 minutes before we called it. I think the thing that I learned the most from that is just, you got to sometimes do what's right for those who are watching. And we needed to instill confidence in those Rangers that we were going to do everything possible for them, everything. And they grew to love us and we grew to love them on that deployment. They're kids. We were all older. We're like either big brother or dad to many of them. And I was really proud of my team because we worked exceptionally well together. I was really proud of the helicopter medic from the 160th because he fell right in and was value added and assisted us. We had one casualty. So all of our focus was on Dave. And I I was very proud of how well we worked together. It was a well-oiled machine. And again, none of that could have ever happened had we have not trained together in, in spinning up and things like that. I think the advent of those Vox boxes, when, when again, necessity being the mother of invention, we've, we found that we were having a hard time in handoffs, handoffs under rotor discs, behind CDs and everything else. We just couldn't talk to one another. And so we went to industry, we went to our comms guys who were the best in the world and said, we've got to be able to talk to one another. And so we could plug our Peltor headsets into these things and then talk just like we are to be able to communicate in that loud dark and sensory deprived environment so that we could pass that necessary information that ultimately ended up benefiting the patients. One of the things that I've been amazed about, especially with people we've interviewed who've been with special forces, special operations, rangers, is that as a medical person, you find yourself in scenarios you would never, ever imagine you would be in, in medical school or nursing school uh, or dental school. 
Did you have any non-medical experiences that you said, wow, I just can't believe this is happening? I'm going to tell you a real quick story because I wrote this one down. I, I was on the Jessica Lynch rescue mission and we move all of our stuff down to Talil Air Base near Nasiriyah. There was a big fight going on down there. There's a lot of wounded and killed Marines. And so we were expecting a lot of casualties. So we went heavy. The, the unit went really heavy down there. And we were unloading a Su-130. And I, I knew he was in the task force somewhere, but I wasn't sure where. And so there's this big ranger grabbing equipment and moving it off to the side. And he was helping us unload all our, all our gear. And I'm like, that's got to be the guy. So he turned around. He had Tillman written on the back of his web gear. So after the bird left, it gets quiet. And I think I'm a major at the time. So I walk up to young specialist Tillman and I'm like, so you're that guy that went to, you guys know I went to the U of A, right? And he snaps to attention. He says, yes, sir. And I look at him and I'm like, well, I went to the U of A. And he laughed and started smiling. He said, I thought I was just coming here to fight with Iraqis. We ultimately became good friends. We ended up occupying a baggage claim at Saddam International Airport and setting up our OR there. And we had our jock there too. And Pat would pull guard duty on our, on our jock and quote unquote medical facility all the time. So we talked a lot. We talked a lot about life, about, we love football. I actually played junior college football up at Scottsdale college when I was an idiot trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. After I got off active duty the first time I played ball up in the Valley where he played at ASU. And we talked about football. He had every intention of going back and playing pro ball. And he, he related that to me. We talked about our wives and about how the crap we put them through and things like that. What was interesting was he was very insightful. And I think he traversed to us docs because I think from the standpoint of he had a lot in common, common with us, he'd already been a grown man, graduated college and everything else. And so he found conversation talking to all of us docs and we enjoyed each other's company. But I remember I was still, after we were hitting dry hole after dry hole after dry hole with all the WMD, he said something to me one day when we were outside and he was holding this big 240 Bravo on guard duty. He said, Jim, I don't think we should be here. And I, I was like, oh man, we're going to find it. It's, we will be just in, in, in this cause. And he goes, you know, we're not finding anything. And it's just, there's no real big smoking gun. I just don't know that we should be here. And I, I just really look back at that statement that he made. And I, hindsight's 2020, and it's all water under the bridge. But I think he was on to something when he said that. Whether or not it was just or not, I guess history will tell. Maybe it already has. But I think Pat was 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 on to something. And I don't want to throw people under the bus. I, I'm not, I wasn't in at, at the highest levels of leadership, but I think we could have done things better. I do. I, I think from, from a governmental standpoint, from a nation standpoint, we could have done things better in, in that conflict, which resulted in Afghanistan likely extending and protracting uh, a, a war that my son actually fought in. But I, I really enjoyed that experience. That's probably one of the most non-medical wazoo moments that that I had when I was deploying. Had an opportunity. I can't really go too much into it, but one of Saddam's, like the guy who guy who was on TV a lot, we rolled him up and he was a little anxious. And so I was asked to come over and help take care of him, relieve some anxiety. 
he was fine, but this is what CRNAs do. We, we make f- people feel comfortable. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your last deployment in uniform. Did you know it was your last deployment in uniform and, and what was it like? I didn't. I, I was actually two other legends, I feel, Dr. Brian Burlingame and Dr. Ian Wedmore, who were very senior 06s. And I think it was an 05 at the time. And I didn't know it was going to be my last one. It was another very busy deployment. It was a wintertime deployment in Afghanistan. We were also based out of CAF. And, and our PA was, was a guy named Mike, who was a former Navy SEAL. And that was just a rock star team that we all got along great. We were very busy covering missions. Not a whole lot of casualties during that during that time frame. There were some. Fortunately, we didn't lose anybody on that trip. But I came home and I was a pay hurt for jumping. And I ended up really messing up my neck, which precipitated me to get out of the army. But I've had two neck surgeries and an anterior posterior fusion as a result of that. I probably should have just said, you guys can keep the 1800 bucks. I don't need it. So I would have saved myself a whole lot of arthritis in my neck, but I always looked at jumping as a way to just get to work. So it really wasn't something that I was fond of doing, but it was something that I had to do because I felt like that's how, that's the way our, our customers get to work. So I need to get to work that way too. Just got a big gust of wind off about 50 feet off the drop zone at Fort Bragg and ended up burning in pretty good, had a bad concussion and messed up my neck. But I, I think that that last deployment, I, I felt like I got to deploy with people I really loved and respected and really in, enjoyed their company. I, I know that during pre-mission and things like that, it, it, we were worked, worked primarily reverse cycle. So we slept uh, during the day and we worked at night. And so before missions would hit, we watched a lot of South Park and there was a lot of irreverence in that hooch. And where else are four or three, three out of four of us were pretty senior guys. And then our, our SEAL, former SEAL PA was a captain. Where, where else are you going to find four guys sleeping stacked like cordwood like that and loving it? We just really enjoyed each other's company. Did a lot of working out and things like that, but just had a, had a great time working with one another. And, and we still, to this day, we remain friends. That's one of the things that I'm really glad that our unit has done was we've developed a, an alumni group that to, to fellowship with one another, to look out for one another, and then just to stay in touch. And there, there's rarely a week that goes by that I don't talk to one of the guys that I deployed with. In fact, I was exchanging text messages today with one of our former med ops guys, and he was talking about going fly fishing in, in, in Wyoming. So I was telling him some good places to go. You really couldn't give it up because even after you retired, you went on to become the director of the Vigilant Expeditionary Services and ultimately went on some more deployments providing care in austerior locations. What led to that? Addiction. That's plain and simple. Addiction. You mainline that adrenaline. You mainline that camaraderie. You feel like you got to have it. I owe my wife a huge debt of gratitude for letting me do those kinds of things. Uh, that was a program that I really can't talk a whole heck of a lot about, but it was it was based on and predicated on what we did in the military to provide far forward surgical care, surgical resuscitation care. But we also had the medical component there as well, which we did at, at the unit that I worked at in the military. But I do think that many of us, some of us, have a hard time stepping away. I, I felt like my career didn't end really necessarily on my terms by getting hurt. And so I retired when I really 
didn't want to, but I did anyways, because of my neck injury. And I'll be honest with you. I hated civilian practice. When I first got out, I thought, I thought it was impersonal. It was just about moving meat, making money. And there was something I was missing, even though I, I was living in and around Fort Bragg and Pinehurst, I was constantly being reminded that I wasn't a part of that anymore. And when you're a part of something so special, I had a front row seat to the global war on terror, at least the first 10 years of it. And so I worked with one of my unit mates who is the CEO of that company to get that whole thing going. And we did do some contract work for the government. And being somebody who has stood up more than one location at a time, I was a good choice, I guess, to head that program. I did it for a couple of years and realized, oh, a little bit over a year ago that I need, at the time I was 55, I was like, I probably need to step away from this. I had a little bit of a tenure in, in academia at UNCG teaching anesthesia. And I, I, I did miss that. And so while on a deployment, I interviewed for the current job I have is teaching nurse anesthesia at the University of Arizona. One of the other things that I've seen is that you're presently involved in veterans advocacy, particularly the fight against suicide. Why is that a particular interest for you? And what do you think people should know about veteran suicide? Doug, it is such a difficult thing to address and it's nebulous. So in 2014, I, I was working at Womack after I retired and I got sequestered out of a job and by an organization that I had served for all those years. And it's like, yeah, we don't need you anymore. And it, it hit hard. And I, for the first time in my life, I, was, I felt depressed. And I ultimately found no problem doing anesthesia work, but I, I felt that I needed to serve something bigger than myself. There was, I was no longer in this elite organization. And so I got linked up with a veterans organization based out of New York City that it was Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America. I'm actually grateful for many of the people that worked in that organization, but did some lobbying on the House and the Senate floor with many congressmen and senators at that point about veteran suicide. That was the, the thing that I did. And I felt like that in particular, that experience helped get me out of that funk to serve something bigger than myself, to serve something other than myself, and which was one of the things I just didn't like about civilian medicine was I, I felt like it was just about generating revenue. I realize that we have to keep the lights on. And, and so I'm able to frame that a little better now that yes, it is about generating revenue because we need that revenue to pay ourselves and to pay everybody at work here and keep the lights on. But at the time, I, I just was not making that mental leap to find what was fulfilling in it for me. And so some veterans advocacy work really helped me to be able to to do that. And I did that for quite some time. In fact, my old unit commander, Rob Lutz, he, he and his wife were interested in forming a veterans organization that provided service dogs to veterans with post-traumatic stress. I was the first chairman of an uh, organization called Continuing the Mission. And I, I no longer do that. I'm no longer the chair, but I do support it whenever I can. And they have placed many, many dogs with vets who have had their struggles and their trials and tribulations. In fact, last year, we were given the honor, my wife and I, of, of naming one of the dogs. And so my wife and I talked about it and we named uh, one of the dogs, Jenny, after Ca Captain Jennifer Moreno, who was an army nurse that was killed supporting the Rangers. And so Jenny's doing great. She's well on her way to graduating and being placed with a veteran very soon. One of the things the military does is it generates veterans. Is there something that the military could be doing better 
to raise awareness of what happens after folks transition to the civilian sector, become a veteran. Is there something that the military could be doing to help that better? I don't recall being taught about community, about finding community again, and then bridging that gap between being a warrior or a soldier and a civilian. There's a, a really good friend and somebody who I deeply respect from one of the units that I supported founded a couple of veterans organizations, and he actually founded a treatment facility out in Bandera, but he framed it really well for me. For us, our generation, we went from combat to home in the blink of an eye. We got on a plane, and there were some times when people were in firefights, and then less than a week later, a few days later, they're at home, and they're supposed to be normal. I think acknowledging that that's not normal is something that, at least during my time, wasn't really talked about. I think we're talking about it more often, but we're still having the problem of veteran suicide. I I think that there are things out there from a medical standpoint that we can do to treat depression, ketamine infusion being one, PTS, stellate ganglion blocks being another. But I think really finding that community is integral to our transition. All the books that I've read, and especially by the ones by veterans themselves, and one in particular was He's not really a veteran, but he served right alongside a lot of folks with Sebastian Younger's tribe. Find your tribe and find those people that you enjoy, that you find community. Now, does that mean wall yourself up from civilians? No, absolutely not. But I think you do need to weave in those things that draw you back in. I, I read something recently about you know, it's okay to carry your sword and your shield. Don't, don't lay it down and walk away from it. Carry it because that's who you are. And I think you need to find other brothers and sisters who have similar life experiences to fellowship with, to talk with. Right now, there's a group of us here in Tucson that meet once a week at another veteran's restaurant. Once a week, we meet at 11 o'clock on Tuesday and we need each other. We're finding that we just need that. And so we're carving out the time to be with each other. And and most of our conversations don't even involve the military, what we did or anything like that. We're talking about the mundane stuff. We're talking about, yeah, how's the plumber doing? Why why we hate ASU. I don't don't really hate those guys up there, especially after my relationship with Pat. It is really tough for me to hate ASU, even even though I'm a die-in-the-world wildcat. It's it's hard for me to hate them. But yeah, I like beating them, but we haven't beat them in a long time in football or, or many other things. But I do think that Finding that community, wherever you end up retiring to, that you can fellowship with like-minded people. And it doesn't even have to be the same people. I went to a party over the weekend, and it was an 80s party. So we had to dress up like we were in the 1980s. The host husband and one of his friends were both pilots in the Air Force, or they're, they're Air Force guys. And we just, we hit it off really well. I think we just find each other because we understand each other a little bit, whether it was shared suffering. I don't know if those Air Force guys suffer all that much, but I love them anyways. They're great. But without them, I mean, we'd be in a world of hurt. My little brother's in the Air Force anyway, so I can't go too hard on them. You mentioned that both your kids are in the military. And if your future grandchildren had a chance to listen to this podcast and listen to you talk, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? I I really would love them to know that their grandfather did his duty and he did it with those that he loved. 
on those that he loved. I think you do these things, especially when people say, oh, you sacrificed. I don't know that I sacrificed. I, I really felt like I did what I loved. And if I could stay young, I would still probably be doing it to a certain degree. But I think I would love for my grandkids to know that I did my duty. And then every opportunity that that was put in front of me, I took it. I'm a kid that graduated from Benson Union High School, little bitty Cowtown in Southeast Arizona. And I ended up having a doctoral degree from Duke. That just doesn't happen every day. And if it wasn't for the Army, I would have never had that opportunity. I, I don't think that anything is outside the realm of, impo- of possibility. I do think that opportunity is there for young people coming up to, I don't know if you use the word better yourself, but it certainly bettered me. My experience in the military, my affiliations with the military, the people that I've met, the people that I grew to love, it made me a better person without a doubt. I feel like they got their pound of flesh out of me and then some, but like all of us, I, I did those things willingly. And I, I think that's what I would want my grandkids to, to remember is you did your duty and I'd hope they would do theirs. We've been speaking with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reed. Jim, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service. Doug, thank you. I'm going to leave you with something that a little World War II veteran, when I told him, I was thanking him for his service because he jumped out of a plane over Normandy. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Jim, you were worth it. I thought that was the best way to ever answer somebody say, thank you for your first service. So Doug, thank you for all you do in this podcast, its mission and the service that you provided this country. I love you, brother. And I am really honored to be a part of this uh, growing collection of incredible people that has had an opportunity to speak to you. Well, it's great to have you join the crew. Appreciate your support. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.